Uh, welcome to the Pray for Surf podcast. This is Bill Miliorati. I'm here with my friend and partner, Mark Dillon, 50 Sides of the Beach Boys, and we are doing Heroes and Villains. This is uh, part two. We're going to look at some of those nefarious folks who are part of the lives of the Beach Boys. Hello, Mark. Hey, Phil. How you doing? Very good. How about you get us started? Let's start going through your list. Well, yeah, we... Uh had uh, Heroes and Villains Part 1 last time, talking about the heroes, uh, since it is the Christmas season, I, I like to also call this our, our naughty and nice list, so we, we had the nice list, now it's uh, it's time to get a little bit naughty, uh, it's, uh, you know, we're going to present a, a rogues gallery of the Beach Boys history, or a hall of shame, however you want to uh, phrase it, but uh, these are people that... Uh, well, I mean, I don't know about your list. My list ranges from guys that are truly evil to, you know, guys that I guess uh, made some missteps that were uh, detrimental to the band. So quite a quite a wide range of uh, folks, of rogues, we're going to talk about today. Yeah, I think that's a good way of putting it. And, uh, you know, we're not here in any legal sense or judge and jury, but uh, just trying to say here are circumstances that were whether they were uh, just a little trip up for the Beach Boys or something much more serious. Um, obviously, uh, we can talk about places and things, but there's people always involved in that. So here we go, Beach Boys, Heroes and Villains, Part 2, The Villains. You want to start with your first one? Well, last time we talked about the fact that some people could likely find themselves on both the naughty and nice list. Uh, and, and uh, you know, the duality of man, etc. So uh, my number one choice is going to be Murray Wilson. <laughs> Me too. I'll just jump right in and say, same thing. Go ahead, you can leave. He led the heroes. Um, but uh, for all he did in terms of getting the Beach Boys career off the ground, I mean, we can't forget that uh, he was an abusive parent to uh, Brian, Dennis, and Carl. And... Uh, you know, as has been pointed out, uh, perhaps instilled some self-worth issues in, in some of his sons who uh, engaged in self-destructive behavior. Um, you know, we, we have audio records of, uh, you know, how disruptive he could be to the recording process. I mean, this is after the Beach Boys canned him as their manager in 1964, but, you know, he showed up uh, at the Help Me Ronda sessions, for example. Uh, probably after having a glass or two of wine uh, with dinner and uh, went on a bit of a, a tear, a rampage. And I, I'm, I'm amazed how Brian dealt with the situation. This is a very famous audio tape, which people can, can dig up online. But, uh, you know, what a lot of pressure to have your dad come in and, 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 and insult you and, and disrupt your, your creative process. And Brian really keeps his cool. But, I mean, I'm sure on the inside, it, uh, these kind of uh, occurrences were, were very hurtful. And I guess... Uh, I guess the last thing that, that Murray did that gets him on this list is his part in selling off Sea of Tunes. Oh, my. Oh, my, yeah. Yeah, I mean... That was horrific. What, what a brilliant thing that, that he did. What a smart thing that he did early on in the career to, to have... You know, Brian and, and, and his collaborators retain their publishing because uh, that did not happen for, for many artists at all. And, uh, you know, would have been great if he'd held on to it, but I mean, I think, you know, he was looking at an early retirement and, and, and wanted to cash in. So, uh, you know, apparently with, with Audrey and Brian's 
uh, buy-in. He, he sold Sea of Tunes to Irving Almo Music in 1969 for $700,000. You know, and there are some estimates that the catalog has uh, subsequently generated $100 million. So, uh, you know, despite a lawsuit that got uh, Brian and ultimately Mike $5 million each, in the 90s, uh, that, that's a big loss. And, uh, you know, how willing was Brian in terms of uh, signing off on that? I mean, maybe he was, maybe he wasn't. There's been some, uh, you know, implications that perhaps his uh, signature was forged or that he was not of sound mind. But, uh, you know, his ex wife Marilyn says that Brian was quite devastated by that sale. So, uh, shame on you, Murray. Yeah, I think to anyone, whatever your personality style is, uh, for a father to do that is uh, painful. But to someone like Brian, who I, I think is, for whatever reasons, I'm just so sensitive. I mean, this, uh, I, I can't imagine what that felt like. There's also a uh, circumstance that I would sadly add to his list of uh, things that would put him on our you know, naughty list here. Um, the, the car ride uh, where uh, David Marks right. well, was either fired or quit. I mean, it kind of probably depends on who you talk to, but, you know, reading that, uh, it's like, like, you know, I can understand an adult being upset by, uh, you know, a kid who's acting like a young punk and talking back and all that, but uh, I, I just wonder what the Beach Boys would, sound would have developed into had... Uh, David's still been there, you know, to add his distinctiveness with the guitar. I don't know that vocals would have been that much different, but, and of course we'd never know, it's all speculation. Okay, who's uh, next on your list? Well, this is kind of a continuation of the previous one in the whole Sea of Tunes fiasco. Uh, Abe Summer um, was a Beach Boys lawyer, and according to Mike Love's book, Good Vibrations, uh, operated in a conflict of interest in this uh, matter because he was also representing Irving Almo. So, you know, the seller and the buyer representing, playing, playing both ends, you know, uh, conflict of interest. And, uh, you know, when, when the lawsuit uh, happened in the 90s, uh, you know, the law firm that Summer worked for, Mitchell, Silverberg, and Nutt, was, uh, was brought into that. So, uh, you know, some, some shady dealings going on there. Yeah, very uh, villainous stuff to do to uh, other men at that point, but certainly as the, the early on with some of this stuff, they were still, uh, you know, young guys just trying to make this thing work. How about another name? Lauren Schwartz. Interesting character. Um, so Lawrence Schwartz uh, apparently worked for the William Morris Agency, and uh, he had a pad in the early '60s that was uh, quite a hangout uh, for a lot of guys in, the, in that scene. Uh, musicians. Uh, there were girls there. There were party favors there. You know, when I interviewed. Um, Roger McGuinn of the Birds, because the Birds used to hang out there. And, and as you might know, Roger, you know, in, in more recent years, has uh, r really adopted a Christian lifestyle. And uh, he would not even talk to me about uh, what happened at Lawrence Schwartz's apartment. He said, I can't, I can't talk to you about that stuff these days. I can't talk about that anymore. So one can only imagine what kind of den of iniquity we're talking about. 
but oh, uh, as far as the stories go, I mean, Brian hung, hang out there. That might be where he met Van Dyke Parks. I mean, Tony Asher was a friend of Lauren Schwartz's. Uh, you know, uh, David Crosby. Like they all sort of circulated there. Lauren Schwartz is sort of best known, you know, in the Brian Wilson story for giving his first hit of LSD. And uh, you know, they became pretty close friends for a while, um, much to Marilyn's chagrin. Uh, Lauren would come around the house a lot. I mean, it's not to say that Brian would not have found LSD elsewhere, but you know, for being the guy that sort of got him on that road, because apparently Brian suffered auditory hallucinations like very soon after this very first experience. So uh, you know, it set him down a path of uh, you know recreational drug taking that that you know obviously had an impact on his physical and mental health. Um, you know, all this said, I mean, when you see Lauren Schwartz interviewed, for example, in David Leaf's uh, documentary *Beautiful Dreamer*, I mean, he seems like a rather amiable and funny guy, but. Uh, you know, he did have a hand in uh, in Brian's uh, getting into getting into drugs. Well, and yeah, I, I guess I yeah, what I would add to that is just my personal opinion. Uh, anyone who supplied or drew in uh, any of the Beach Boys, and certainly the Three Wilson Brothers, into drugs, um, I don't think they did them any favors. Uh, you know, that that was their decision. And, I know that some people do not have the same view that I do about drugs, but certainly, uh, you know, Carl had a horrible spell with uh, cocaine, and uh, Dennis became, uh, maybe he was preset to be uh, addicted to alcohol and other things, but uh, just destroyed his life. Uh, came close to putting Brian totally out of commission. Um, so from my point of view, I'm trying to be a moralist here, but just the reality of that, uh, uh, I'm glad Brian's still alive. Uh, you know, some would say, well, without drugs, could he have written California Girls or, you know, things like that. And, uh, you know, we can argue that a long time. But, again, just I'm glad for the good music, the great music, but also uh, wishing we still had uh, two of the Wilson brothers. You can respond to that or take us to another person. Well, I'm going to take you to another person. Now, this one's a bit tangential, but I mean, certainly a guy whose name pops up in the Beach Boys story all the time. That's Phil Spector. Aha. I'm glad you mentioned him. He's on my list, too, so go ahead. I mean, there's no question that Phil Spector was a huge influence on, on Brian and his music, the whole wall of sound thing. Um, there's no question. Uh, I, I think in their personal encounters, my impression is that Phil was a bit patronizing, perhaps, to Brian. I mean, Phil thought he was the man and I think liked to put other people in their place. You know, we do have stories of Brian dropping in on sessions like for the uh, Phil Spector's Christmas album. Um, and, you know, th these were kind of almost humiliating experiences for Brian. You know, he felt he was just so in awe of being in Phil Spector's presence that like he couldn't really function properly, asked to play the piano and... Uh, you know, I, I just think I don't think Phil was 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 the nicest guy to Brian or, or to many people. And then you know, ultimately, Phil Spector is a villain because he uh, he murdered actress Lana Clarkson in two thousand and three, uh, and yeah. and went to jail. And my next choice is also a convicted murderer, Charles Manson. Um, 
recently deceased. It was very unfortunate that uh, Dennis met up with this guy and introduced him to the Hollywood scene. Manson wanted to make music and get a record deal and had some degree of genuine talent, I would say, and uh, recorded home demos or recorded demos at Brian's home studio. Um, he leached off Dennis, him and his uh, his followers, um, moved into Dennis's house. Dennis tried to to shake them, but uh, even when Dennis moved out of his own house, they uh, they found out where he moved to. Uh, and of course, this all came to a head in uh, July and August 1969, uh, with at least nine murders that we know about. Uh, the most famous ones being known as the Tate LaBianca murders. Um, and in December 1971, uh, Manson was convicted of, of first-degree murder, and. Uh, you know, this had a lifelong impact on Dennis. Um, if you, you know, talk to people like Daryl Dragon, who played keyboards with the group and uh, arranged some music with Dennis, um, became the captain of Captain Antoniel. You know, he has said that he thought that Dennis's downward spiral into drug and alcohol addiction was very much caused by the guilt and the fear that uh, Dennis felt from this uh, association with uh, with Charles Manson. Uh, Phil, you asked me when we were offline um, if uh, Manson was targeting Terry Melcher uh, the night of the, uh, the murders that included Sharon Tate at that particular house. And, uh, yeah, he wanted to get a, uh, a record deal from Terry Melcher specifically, and Melcher really didn't have the time of day for him. Um, but it's documented that Manson would have been aware that Terry Melcher and his girlfriend Candace Bergen had moved out of that house uh, months beforehand. So he might have had some residual anger at that house, but uh, I guess he was just looking to, to strike out at somebody in the, in the Hollywood establishment and, uh, and make some noise and uh, strike some fear. Um, of course, you know, the association between the Beach Boys and Charles Manson lives on uh, in, in recorded music, uh, specifically the track Never Learn Not to Love on the 2020 album, which uh, was an adaptation of a, of a Charles Manson song called Cease to Exist. Um, and the very lyrics to that song are very disturbing. I mean, they sound like a uh, recruitment anthem for Manson and his cult uh, as the Beach Boys sing it. It's Cease to Resist, Come Say You Love Me, Give Up Your World, Come On and Be With Me. Uh, in retrospect, that's uh, pretty frightening stuff. And he certainly belongs on this uh as you say, the naughty of our naughty and nice list here. So, Charles Manson. Who's next? Eugene Landy. Okay, I wondered when we get to him. He's on my list too. I, I suspected he might be. Um, <laughs> so anyway, uh, Eugene Landy was hired by uh, by Marilyn in 1976 to help. Um, help Brian get back into good health and uh, we had him on our heroes list as well which might surprise some people but I mean he is credited with with saving Brian's life I guess and being a positive influence in in, in some 
key regards. So, I mean, we can never, uh, you know, sell him short for, for having, you know, brought Brian back from the abyss. But um, this guy was motivated by greed. Uh, he had showbiz aspirations. He, you know, in his first stint with Brian in 76, in, in I mean, he tried to take control of Beach Boys group meetings. He, uh, you know, he had his, what he called milieu therapy where he had to be in Brian's life 24-7, and he got involved with decisions he should never have gotten involved with. For example, uh, during the recording of the Beach Boys' Love You album, uh, the original lead vocal, well, this might have been recorded a bit earlier, but it ended up on... Uh, on the Beach Boys Love You, uh, Honking Down the Highway had a lead vocal by Billy Hinchy. So Billy, who had been playing with the band for a number of years, got his shot at, at a lead vocal, and uh, but he got into some kind of dispute with Landy. So Landy said, "Okay, forget it. We're not using uh, we're not using your lead vocal." And uh, Al Jardine got to sing it. And this is uh, this is according to Billy. Uh, so you know, power trips like that, and you know, the Beach Boys had had enough. They fired him. He was fired at that time. But then you know, Brian slipped again in the early '80s and was in it was in really rough shape, and, and everyone was worried for him. And <clears throat> it was decided that. Um, the only way out was, was to get Eugene Landy back. So this happened early 1983, but this is when things really, you know, got crazy. I mean, again, more interference when the Beach Boys recorded their 1985 album. When, when Brian uh, recorded his solo album, I mean, Landy was throwing up roadblocks and creating twists and turns all the way through. I interviewed Russ Teitelman, who produced a lot of uh, the songs off that album, and he, and he said he was, Russ was just losing his mind because Landy would call and interrupt and, and, and he would always try and keep Brian off balance you know um, so yeah I mean it's, it's kind of strange like you know he did good for Brian and he, and he did a lot of bad for Brian and he, uh, he ran afoul of, of the law and uh, medical board in California because he had a business relationship with Brian who he was treating um, he financially exploited Brian he got himself written into Brian's will and, uh, you know, illegally prescribed medication to him. And, you know, I believe that, that the medication that Landy prescribed to Brian, ostensibly for Brian's own good, did more damage to Brian than all the recreational hard drugs that, uh, that Brian ever did. And, uh, you know, I think, I think Brian paid a, paid a big price for that. So it was definitely a good thing to get Eugene Landy out of Brian's life. This one is related to Eugene Landy, and his name is Todd Gold. Yeah, okay, go ahead. So Todd Gold was hired uh, to write a memoir uh, with Brian entitled Wouldn't It Be Nice, My Own Story. 
um, now many people have read this book and I mean it is completely delivered through the Eugene Landy filter I mean Eugene Landy is pretty much the hero of the book you know and uh, as we said there are some heroic elements to what what Eugene Landy did but many bad ones Um, the book itself that, that Todd Gold put together you know, has some value. I mean, there are some genuine memories from Brian that could only have come from Brian. For example, just little things like like Brian going to a Rolling Stones session, you know, like uh, these, these are great memories. So it's partially that, but then it's partially, you know, Eugene Landy's point of view. And then other than that, it's like a major uh, regurgitation of stuff that had been written before particularly uh, David Leaf's book, I would say, The Beach Boys and, and, and the California Myth. Um, you know, just from my own point of view, I wrote a book about the Beach Boys, and my, my book is annotated when, when, I, when I got <coughs> excuse me, a unique piece of information from another book, I credit that writer. I think that's, that's the way it should be done, you know? Um, this book, you know, it takes pot shots at other members of the group, uh, at Brian's family, you know, it's it's just uh, you know. Thankfully, Brian has has replaced this with uh, uh, you know a more recent memoir called I Am Brian Wilson, which he wrote with Ben Greenman, which is a, a far superior, far more satisfying read, I would say. Anyway, as as for this guy Todd Gold, he was uh, People Magazine's West Coast bureau chief, I believe, and he had to leave. Um, I think it was in two thousand five amid sexual harassment claims. So this was. Uh, Hashtag me too a uh, long time ago. Um, you know, he's a writer that uh, had written books with Anne Margaret and Richard Pryor. Um, you know, it's just interesting how some of the people on this list amounted to no good. Like their ultimate <laughs> sort of fate, you know, they, they paid a price for, 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 you know, bad behavior, whether or not it related, you know, to the Beach Boys. Um, he was sued by Mike Love. Todd Gold was reportedly uh, Mike got 1.5 million dollars from Harper Collins for uh, defamation uh, of character, and uh, anyway, so uh, there were other lawsuits as well from from other people. But uh, yeah, this was uh, this is quite a notorious book in uh, the Beach Boys library. Given what you said about that book, would you one of these days we should do a podcast on you know the major books because there's a whole bunch of them now. Back in the day, you know, we would grasp for a crawdaddy article and be thinking it was fantastic. But so we'll do that one day. But based on the, what you said about that book, would you recommend someone even, is it a waste of time to read it if they've not done so already, a waste of cash to buy it? Well, I think if you're, if you're a Beach Boys fan, a Brian Wilson fan, I mean, this book is part of the story, you know? So I think... The book is definitely worth reading, but sometimes you see people on social media saying, oh, this is a great book, and they seem to be getting their information from this book. So, I mean, like with anything else, you have to approach it with a critical eye. You know, you you cannot accept, I mean, certainly anything coming from Eugene Landy, you have to take with a huge grain of salt. Um, So, no, I think it's, uh, you know, I'm not into censorship or anything like that. I think people should read the book, but maybe not the place to start. Uh, There's more accurate, uh, edifying books out there, you know, that would be a better place to start. And then, uh, you know, once you know the story, then you can go back and, and look at this one and, and see, you know, all the holes that are that can be punched in it. Yeah, and I just want to add to you that what you're saying about the book is not just your opinion. 
it's not one writer maybe not liking what another writer did. It, it really has been demonstrated that uh, this, this is a bit of, this is convoluted. Gene Landy is uh, pulling strings here somewhere. And so that, it has to be read with that perspective. It's not just a, a Mark or a Phil viewpoint because we don't agree with what's in the book. Fair to say? Fair to say. Okay, great. Someone next who, who's on your list? Well, this guy's also an author, whether you know it or not. His name is Rushton Rocky Pamplin. <clears throat> so Rocky was a uh, college football player and a male model who uh, was hired along with Mike Love's brother, Stan Love, um, to act as Brian's bodyguard in the era we were talking about, uh, 1976, around that time. You know, the idea was to keep Brian... Uh, away from drugs. Uh, now this guy, quite a character, he had an affair with Marilyn. Uh, the worst thing that uh, Rocky was involved with, along with Stan, was uh, a brutal beating of Dennis in 1981. Um, you know, they did it just for the hell of it, it seems. I mean, obviously Dennis had made their lives difficult because, you know, Dennis, you know, may very well have been funneling drugs to Brian. So, uh, yeah. anyway, I mean, th this was a senseless act of violence. Um, you know, violence seemed to be something these guys, this uh, terrible twosome, uh, <laughs> like to engage in. Uh, Rocky also punched Carl out unconscious uh, on the Australian tour, you know, for uh, ostensibly getting some heroin to Brian. Um you know, and, and part of the irony of all this is that, by his own admission, Rocky was a bit of a partier, too. I mean, the night that they beat up Dennis, he said that he was high. They were they were partying, him and uh, him and Stan, you know. And then they go and beat up Dennis for, for you know, the, that kind of thing that he did. Um, I, you know, do you remember MySpace? Yeah. People I, had MySpace pages? I remember that, yeah. yeah. <laughs> so, I had one. Okay, I think I had one too, and and Rocky Pamplin had one. I remember stumbling upon it many years ago, and uh, you know, even after all these years, you know, he was making disparaging remarks about uh, about Marilyn and about Carney, uh, very nasty, racist type remarks. I mean, pretty shocking stuff. Uh, and apparently, he is, uh, you know, that hasn't changed because apparently he uh, made some remarks on the Smiley Smile. .NET forum that got him banned there. So, uh, you know, he, he hasn't changed. And, and all this has suddenly become a little bit relevant because, you know, as I was saying earlier, I called him an author. He came out last year with a book entitled The Beach Boys' Miracle Comeback, The Inside Story of How America's Band Survived. And uh, it was news to you, and I think it's news to, uh, to many. It's not, uh, it's not getting much attention at all. Well, when... Ever someone or a group in this case is uh, famous, uh, it draws all kinds of people, and many of them are very self-centered, and in this case, even harmful. Somebody next on your list. Well, again, this ties back to the previous, and that's Stan Love. Uh, Stan Love was a basketball player, a professional basketball player, and, uh, you know, as mentioned, he was hired to uh, look after Brian. Um, but, yeah, I mean, uh, the beatdown of Dennis, I think, is, is the, the ultimate negative moment. Um, 
Interestingly, Stan spearheaded the legal action to have Landy removed from Brian's life, and uh, his goal was that he wanted himself appointed as conservator, which I find a little bit strange. So you have to uh, you have to question his motives. I think for for Stan to sort of come out of the woodwork and 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 try and take control of Brian's life after all that time. Uh, I mean more power to anybody that got Eugene Landy out of Brian's life, but uh, it, it seems like the move was at least partially uh, personally motivated. Well, and you hope that that tentacle doesn't connect anyone else in his family, so we'll maybe just leave it at that. You got another one? I do, uh, and I think uh, he might be on your list as well. Uh, this is not, not a good day for the, the Love family. Stephen Love. Um, <laughs> so, uh, so he's Mike Love's estranged brother. He was the Beach Boys manager uh, in the 1970s, and uh, you know a few a few missteps here. Um, for example, uh, it was due to Steve that Blondie Chaplin exited the band prematurely. I would say it would have been nice if Blondie had stuck around, but uh, according to to what Blondie tells me, um, he got into a fist fight uh, backstage with uh, with Steve Love because you know after a long tour they were playing at Madison Square Garden and Blondie had some guests there that night and uh, and Steve stuck them you know in the nosebleed section. This didn't sit well with Blondie and. Uh, Words were exchanged, fisticuffs were exchanged, and uh, Blondie said, okay, I've had enough, I can't work with you guys anymore. So that's the kind of manager, I guess, that Steve was. Um, you can lay the blame for the 1976 Brian is Back campaign you know, on Steve. I mean, for a lot of people, Brian was not ready to be back, not ready to be in the spotlight, not ready to be trotted back on stage. I mean, he, he gave the appearance of, of being like a trained bear almost, you know. Um, so, I mean, there was some success uh, in, in getting the Beach Boys uh, in the news, for sure. I mean, this generated a lot of publicity. You know, there was Mike Douglas' show, there was Saturday Night Live, but I mean, these are kind of cringy appearances by Brian, but... Um, there was that, and then I guess worst of all, uh, in, 1980, in 1988, um, he was, Steve was convicted of embezzling $906,000 um, from the group, uh, sentenced to probation and had to pay restitution. Um, now, apparently, more recently on social media, Steve has claimed that he was exonerated from grand larceny. Uh, I personally have tried to track down some evidence of this, and I couldn't, so maybe it's true, maybe it's not, but uh, I don't think uh, he makes uh, Brother Mike's uh, nice list either. How's your list? You got any more names? I have a couple more names, because, uh, you know, in the old days, uh, albums used to have 12 okay. songs, so I wanted uh, an album's worth of, of villainy. Uh, how about Walter Yetnikoff? <laughs> I don't know if, if you remember this, but I certainly do. Do you remember having a hard time finding Beach Boys albums on uh, record shelves back in the 80s? Oh, yeah. Um, definitely. I certainly did. And uh, according to, to Jim Gersio, uh, whom I just mentioned and, and who I interviewed for my book, the, the reason was that they were pulled or, or not distributed by Yetnikoff. Um, the, the Beach Boys had signed a deal with CBS Records, and uh, Gersio 
you know, had them on his Caribou label. But uh, Yetnikoff, you know, a notorious fellow president of CBS Records, very difficult, very abusive, you know, really heavy into the drink and drugs and, and, and crazy behavior. Um, him and Gersio got into a, a fight, basically, and uh, in retaliation, according to Gersio, Yetnikoff you know, pulled the Beach Boys record, so uh, apparently Mike Love was furious about this. Um, you know, Yetnikoff has quite an interesting history with, uh, with the Beach Boys. He was the guy that signed them to an $8.5 million deal with CBS Records, which was no doubt good for the guys. I don't know how good it was for CBS, to be honest, because uh, it's not like a lot of hit records uh, came out of that. Um, he issued that now famous quote, uh, you'll have to pardon my, my language, but uh, what he said was, uh, upon hearing their first submission of the L.A. album was, gentlemen, I think I've been fucked. Um, yeah. You know? Yeah. So, remember what I said earlier about, I, I guess, about karma and how, you know, people who, who seem to behave badly come to unfortunate ends? Well, I think CBS had enough of Yetnikoff and uh, fired him in, in 1990. Well, when you say that, there's scripture that comes to mind. You reap what you sow. Yep. Same idea. Yeah. Yeah. Well, interesting name. Seeming to pull out of nowhere, but yet, uh, wow. Could would it's like would somebody really do that? You know, still cut off your nose despite your face, kind of thing. I mean, what? That's just amazing. But well, this is one of the things that. Yeah, this is one of the things that uh, you know Gersio kind of had enough of the music business. That and uh, a fire that happened at his uh, studio out there in Colorado, where. Uh, you know, Carl Wilson and, and Brian and Dennis had, had done some stuff uh, after these, after the fight with uh, with CBS and uh, and that fire. Gersio basically said, "I've had enough of the music business." And you had said you had one more. Yes, we we couldn't end without this doofus, James Watt. Oh, thank you. I was just looking at that name on my list. Go ahead. <laughs> <laughs> so. Um, so un under Ronald Reagan, James Watt was the Secretary Secretary of the Interior, and uh, the Beach Boys had uh, performed a July Fourth concert at Washington's National Mall in 1980 and 1981. In 1983, James Watt said he did not want any rock bands performing there uh, because they attracted the wrong element, which means like, you know, everybody except nerds like that guy. But um, he didn't mention the Beach Boys by name. In fact, he said he didn't even know who the Beach Boys were. But I mean, everybody took it to mean the Beach Boys because they were the high profile band that had performed in a couple of, uh, of previous years. Well, this was actually kind of good for the Beach Boys because it sort of rallied the country around them. I mean, there were like bumper stickers and, you know, honk if you like the Beach Boys signs out there and stuff like that. So it, it brought them a lot of attention, you know, and then Ronald Reagan said, no, they're fine. You know, the late George H.W. Bush uh, said, and I quote, they're my friends and I like their music. They had actually uh, done some fundraising concerts for, for George H.W. Bush's uh, presidential campaign, which was the only time they ever did that. Uh, anyway, so, you know, Watt was just considered to be an imbecile, and, you know, they presented him with a plaster foot with a, a hole in it, 
the idea being he had shot himself in the foot and he apologized and uh, the Beach Boys performed uh, instead of, they, they booked uh, I think Atlantic City that year once they figured they were out for, for Washington but they managed to uh, fit in a concert, a memorable concert uh, for the Reagans uh, on the White House lawn uh, in June. Well, very solid list and some great insights. Let me just mention a couple things. I won't go through the 12. Um, one, and maybe you know the name of this guy. I think it was, on, uh, well, it was about the time, you know, uh, Brian had been working on Smile. Actually, they kind of, I think, had shelved it at the, this point. But uh, they still worked on Heroes and Villains, the, the single. Uh, so Brian finishes Heroes and Villains. It's late at night. I don't know, maybe it's 11, 12 o'clock. And he goes over to, was it KRLA radio station? And wants them to, wants to give them the, the debut opportunity to play it on the radio. And the DJ says, I'm not sure I could do that. I have to call my manager. Another crestfallen moment for Brian, which... Uh, in some ways, they say, well, you know, you get over that. But it, it, it's just another statement about he comes to the public, if you will, with a, what we now know are works of art, um, certainly works of heart, his heart and soul. And he'd put, you know, in those days, still singles were pretty much, uh, you know, you go in, you play the instrument track, you, you take a couple takes with vocals, and, you know, there it is, it's another song. For him, this is a, a work of art spanning, well, certainly more than six months, maybe a year plus. Anyway, he gets this disappointment again. So I don't know the guy's name, but you could fill that in, but on my uh, naughty list is the DJ who didn't put it on the turntable without, uh, just without thinking and said, hey, everybody, we're interrupting this song to present to you the latest Brian Wilson Beach Boys single, Heroes and Villains. He missed a great opportunity. And Brian was certainly crestfallen in that moment. Yeah. And I'll throw up really not a name. You may have some names in this. My other one would be, uh, I'll just say Capitol Records or Capitol Executives, that, you know, the execs of Capitol Records, or the suits, maybe we'd say. A um, couple things. One is... Uh, whoever it was that put out Ten Little Indians as a single. <laughs> I want to give them some break to say they were thinking, hey, let's, let's not just have to be a surf band. I'd like to, you know, no way they really thought that. But, you know, okay, maybe they were trying to give them a little wider range of uh, top topics or, or others who might buy this beside uh, surf nuts. But uh, uh, even back then, someone had to know this was not the song to put out as the next single. So it was that. Um, certainly, uh, one of the things that comes to mind is uh, Summer Days and Summer Nights. Uh, what an album. Um, one, I've written a small article on it called it the quintessential Beach Boy album. It's like it touches almost every, if you will, genre of, you know, there's an instrumental on there, there's humor on there, there's, uh, you know, covers, all sorts of things. Great uh, hits, Beatlesque songs. I mean, it's just, it's kind of like uh, almost uh, everything Beach Boys on there. And yet Al Jardine's not on the cover. It's like, how could they let that happen? They, you know, would they do that with the Beatles? If, uh, you know, Ringo or George or any of them had said, you know, I'm sick today, I can't make it, if they would not have shot the album cover. So, uh, to me, maybe villain isn't the right word, but certainly the naughty list uh, for, for doing that. 
Well, you make a very good point. I mean, this this I think for sure could be the subject of of, of, a, of a whole podcast, and that is the Beach Boys' up and down relationship with Capitol Records. Um, you know, and and I guess uh, you don't happen to have Carl Engman on your list, do you? No. Go ahead. Well, well, he's the guy that was this about Barbara Ann. No, I was thinking specifically about Pet Sounds. Um, okay, go ahead. Thank so he was the A and R guy uh, for the Beach Boys. And uh, according to Mike Love, and this is a quote, uh, this is what Carl said when they played Pet Sounds for him. This is great, guys, but couldn't you do something more like California Girls or I Get Around? (laughs) Um, So, yeah. So, I mean, I guess some people believe that, you know, Capital had a half-hearted response to, you know, the more progressive music that that Brian was doing. And and like you say, you know, releasing Barbara Ann as a single or releasing, you know, a third greatest hits album that, that did no business for them anyway and I mean who the hell in 1968 wanted to hear the Beach Boys sing Frosty the Snowman like I mean that was not what 1968 was about you know the, the top selling records were by people like The Doors and Cream uh, and anyway so yeah I mean yeah, you know Capital has done a lot of great things for the Beach Boys uh, and in recent years that would be the case but uh, quite a long and tumultuous relationship with the band well, and maybe you alluded to this, you mentioned it, but, you know, the whole royalties thing, um, uh, coming at a time with the ending of their contract, uh, therefore not promoting them well. So, to me, I mean, that's the villainous thing to do to the Beach Boys, but also I think they hurt themselves. I think the sales of some of, some of the tepid sales of their final singles and albums with uh, Capital, not totally attributed to this, but certainly, you know, Capital lost lost interest, or maybe uh, what you were mentioning with the CBS guy, saying, uh, okay, we'll show you, we're, we're not going to let you, uh, you know, we're going to promote you. And so, you know, sadly, these things happen all the time. But, uh, Although I have to say, and I, I've seen, uh, again, on social media, I've seen people make this argument, like, they seem to blame every time a Beach Boys album fails in the market, I guess you could talk specifically about late 60s albums on, on Capital. You know, they blame Capital. Well, it must be Capital didn't promote them. Well, there, there may very well be some truth to that, but I think the music itself, and I mean, just the, the way the band was perceived. I mean, I, you know, it's very natural for a band that has had a career spanning so long that there are ebbs and flows in terms of popularity. I mean, the Beach Boys were so big, you know, in the early and mid-60s, you know, and the music industry changed so much between, you know, that time and the late 60s that they were just perceived as, as being passe. I mean, they held on to sort of their cult group of fans, but I, I think, you know, regardless of Capital's promotion, I think, uh, you know, there, there, there was going to be trouble for, for the group. Oh, yeah. But, oh, that's a fair, yeah. more than fair observation. What comes to mind is uh, when you talk about longevity after flows, a guy like Elvis, I mean, you know, the king, right? And yet there were times when uh, his records were not played like they used to be and sold like they used to be. So, uh, but in real time, no one knew yet what, what is the longevity of a group. Uh, you know, they probably assumed that, um, how do I know? But I'm guessing they assumed the Beach Boys, you know, groups are just done. They're not going to go another 40 years. So, uh, you know, they tried to squeeze all the money they could get out of them. I think the comment you made about, you know, the review of Pet Sounds, it goes back to, and I'm, I'm not sure if we'll ever fully know the full story, but the whole little girl I once knew and Barbara Ann thing, um, I, I just think 
Capital, but my guess, this is a guess, Capital began to hear from DJ saying, this is the moment, you know, the silent, the silent moments, we don't like them. And so even though the uh, record was, you know, top 20, I think it could have gone top 10, um, I think they, they pulled their promotion, I can't prove this, but I think they pulled their promotion on it and then pretty quickly thereafter put out Barb Rand. Um, now, I was at the Brian Wilson concert again, mentioned that, and Barb Rand's one of the encores, the place goes crazy, so was it worth it? We still have Little Girl I Want to Do It, it's not a top 10 hit, so this, that, that's the fun of uh, speculating about what if, what could have happened if something had gone differently, but... Uh, yeah, it's true, yeah, I mean... Certainly was uh, a hero as well, I don't know that we mentioned about our heroes list, I mean, you know, they, they did some great things for them. Absolutely. Great platform, but uh, some of these things were not too nice. As you mentioned them, they're going to get a lump of coal in their, uh, in their stocking this Christmas. <laughs> but maybe a gift under the tree as well. Well, thanks. Love talking about this stuff, and uh, you and I have some ideas in the works, and uh, we hope we'll be uh, getting some good stuff out, you know, as well as this one, beyond, beyond this soon. So thanks, Mark. We'll talk again. Thanks, Phil.